I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. An often discussed benefit of having your own podcast is the ability to have conversations with folks that might otherwise be inaccessible due to their acclaim within a specific field. To this point, I think of previous guests like Tony Gentlecore and Fergus Connolly, brilliant minds who have rightfully garnered the awareness they deserve. However, another benefit of Michelle and I being the architects of more train, less pain is the ability to give a platform to lesser known individuals that have had a massive impact on our professional and personal development. Non-household names that we believe in the next five to 20 years will become household names within our fields. Mike Camperini is one such individual. Mike is a doctor of physical therapy and strength coach currently working with in-person patients in Arizona and online clients all over the country, including several professional baseball athletes. He is a Padawan of the Yoda of the rehab world, Bill Hartman, and has completed a clinical rotation at IFAST under Bill and attended Bill's legendary intensive. He's featured prominently on Bill's YouTube videos from 2020. Michelle hooked me up with Mike when we were both in Boston, and I worked with him to sort out some hip issues. While his interventions were incredibly effective, it was his process and clinical reasoning that really stuck with me. And after listening to this episode, I think you'll know what I mean. We've been friends ever since. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I enjoyed recording this episode. Yeah, I started recording, so we can just kind of edit this. Go in anyway, Troy. Okay. Well, you can edit this. I'm not doing anything. That's that's true. You're just here, just passively opening your mouth and saying and watching words fall out. Pretty much. I'm going to black out here in two seconds. <laughs> Mr. Michael Camperini, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for having me on this very professional uh, platform you have going on. Absolutely. I mean, it's 10 seconds in and neither one of us has said fuck yet, so that's a start. <laughs> I'm going to hopefully refrain just because I don't want to get fired or anything like that. You seem to have a little bit more uh, professional freedom, if you will, but I don't know. For all potential future employers, if I do curse on here, it is out of passion rather than... Uh, <laughs> irresponsibility so how about that i mean i I just do it to make it make myself sound cooler to give me some street cred (laughs) because that's incredibly important in the colorado physical therapy market right they haven't gotten out of that whole middle school vibe yet so whoever says the most f-bombs is definitely the coolest kid on the playground yeah it's just i I, yeah my iq jumps up by 50 or at least perceived (laughs) iq it's tough when your natural iq is like 20 because then it's like you know 70 all right man um you uh, are you working out nowadays? What are you doing? No, not really. <laughs> I'll I'll be lucky if I get two workouts a week, and most of it is like using the thirty pound dumbbells I have tucked away in my coat closet in my apartment here, and a lot of it is revolving around uh, don't let yourself get too flabby and make sure your neck doesn't absolutely kill after the workout routine so there you go Not, nothing too exciting no <laughs> but i mean i don't really post much of myself doing anything on instagram because i don't do anything <laughs> <laughs> but i think this is i think this is kind of an important discussion to have because i think a lot of people in the strength conditioning fields or the physical therapy field um you know we're kind of as, at, at least when you're first starting out you're pretty pressed for time so 
Sure. It's like, you know, people that are used to having immense time freedom and access to a wide variety of training means are like now right. suddenly, especially in COVID times, kind right. of crunched for both equipment and time. So it's like, I guess, I guess, what are you doing within those two workouts a week to get yourself the most bang for your buck? Like, what do those workouts actually look like? Um, I mean, I, and I will, you know, preface this and say like, I am certainly not the shining example of what people should be doing. And I certainly agree with the idea that you should practice what you preach and at least be somewhat consistent with the routine and have a goal in mind. But with that being said, I pretty much am like finding I'll do like an A1 and an A2 of like lower body stuff that, you know, I feel I personally feel, which, you know, I don't have a coach there or anything. I feel like I'm executing well enough and then i'll do a b1 and a b2 of like upper body stuff and then i'll do you know if i'm feeling like my energy levels are still there i'll do a c1 and a c2 of like arm farm and kind of call it a day from there um <coughs> whole goal in mind is to pretty much maintain as much movement as i can post exercise but me um i have a long-standing history of uh, so I always joke that high school me would be very disappointed with current me as far as how I'm working out right now, because high school me was all about the bench press. And so I would do my, my A's would be, so I, here, here's my, here's my 16 year old workout routine, go into my high school gym, rep out like eight pull-ups as a quote unquote warm up, lay down on the bench press and just do like seven sets of five of whatever weight I felt like I could do for that day. And then do like a B1, two, and three of dumbbell bench press, chain weighted dips. And I, then I would do like uh, sets of lunges paired with that too. And then I'd call it a day. And I'd go home and like eat a box of Cheez-Its or something. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like... Uh... I mean, were chain weighted dips even an actual exercise that people did before Instagram? Uh, apparently, I was ahead of my time then, and I still wasn't. That's when I should have like created a entire like database of exercises that I was doing because then I would have way more followers on Instagram than I do right now. So there's there's nothing that instantly makes an exercise look cooler than just draping chains over one draping chains on you. I know. Especially so, if like all your all your followers were like WWE fans or something like that, <laughs> look like the Undertaker or something, you know. I did uh, ten sets of one repetition of chair smash, what chain, is chain? <laughs> chain chain draped, obviously. <laughs> so instead of programming med ball slams, I'm literally gonna get like disposable plastic chairs and just have people absolutely demolish the on the ground. Yeah, you can actually get 49 of them from Costco for $199. So per unit volume, that's, that's actually pretty effective. That's like, they should advertise that as like, are you trying to break the Guinness World Record for most plastic chairs broken in one hour? Then you got to buy this. So I want to commend you on answering the question you wanted to answer instead of the question I asked. <laughs> what, what was your last workout? <laughs> My last work, so my last workout was like, okay, I did, uh, 
hook lying, low reach, so lay, lay on the ground and like dig my heels in and get a hamstring cramp in both sides and then breathe because um, that seems to help with my hip position as well as the sensation that I'm not crushing my upper back when I'm trying to do anything weighted. So I paired that with reverse lunges with 30 pound dumbbells in either hand. Um, I did that for probably three sets. I probably said to myself, okay, let's do four. Then I got tired by the third set and I didn't want to do a fourth one. So I moved on um, to, I did hook lying skull crushers. And then I did, what did I do after that? I think that was paired with a bicep curl as well as a hook line pullover. And then C1 and C2 was bicep curls. And then I think I did like an ipsilateral dead bug or something like that. That's pretty much my, my routine. It's like, okay, ground-based pretty much everything other than some main lower body and upper body lift. So there you go. How does that compare? So I was a big fan of the podcast that you and Justin Moore did. Sure. On, on Joel's, the Just Fly Sports Performance Podcast, and I'll link that in the show notes. Thanks um, for but I, I know, uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, it, you know, I'm not just blowing smoke up your taint. Like, it was, it was fucking dope. Um, so you guys used to work together in a performance training facility, right? Mm-hmm. You guys would train together. Yeah, so back, back in the day, we were doing, um, he roped me into doing mass because he was obsessed with mass. Before I even started working there, he was doing it for like a year. When I, when I was working there, we pretty much did it the entire time I was there. And then after I left, he continued to do it, and as well as Mass 2. Um, so while I was working there, our, and it was good. Like, I'm definitely way better, like, working out of a performance facility with, like, means of doing whatever I want, as well as having a training partner that, you know, we have similar motivations, similar interests, similar thought processes, all that. Um, so we would, we would work all day and then pretty much between the hours of like eight to 10 at night, we would either do like a warm up, and our warm up would be like, you know, we'd play wall ball against each other. He'd always smoke me because he's massive and he eclipses the sun and I can't even see the ball in front of him. Um, and then we would do like a 30-30 circuit or whatever it was, whatever phase it was. Um, I'd get crushed and then I'd go home, fall asleep, and we'd wash, rinse, repeat through, you know, I probably did that for like nine months, something like that. So certainly juxtaposed to how we're doing things now, or at least how I'm programming for them now, it's pretty, pretty different. So. And I mean, in terms of eventual physique circa March of 2021, like, I mean, you guys are practically twins. <laughs> I mean, he's still got like four inches on me, but, <laughs> and, you know, 12% less body fat, but that's fine too. He yeah, looks like a goddamn superhero. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's like, oh, are you working out for the new uh, DC Comics movie? No, you're just, that's just what you look like. All right, cool. Uh, and I'll link, uh, for people that don't know, I'll link both Mass and, and Justin Moore in the show notes. So for anyone that's still listening, we should we should probably get around to talking to some, about some real stuff. So, yeah, other than my personal life. So I got one for you. What's up? Um, did back squats take your mom out for a nice steak <laughs> dinner and never call her back? Or 
Like, did they not pay child support? Like, I don't, what, what is your issue with back squats? I have nothing against back squats, and you're putting words in my mouth right now to where I've never said anything bad about back squats. I used to religiously back squat, you know, two years ago or something like that when I was trying to get jacked and tan or as much as I can anyway. It's, um, so, Your New Jersey is showing. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> as much as it could. Um, do, you, do you think hammers are a dumb tool? No, I think they're incredibly appropriate when you have nails. Exactly. But if you have screws, are they useful? No. <laughs> That's it. So it, it's a tool. That's all it is. And it's, it, when, when you put it like that, as far as like thinking about other things we actually think of as tools, and then you say like, oh, hammers are dumb. You sound like an idiot. Like it's not... <laughs> Like that doesn't make any sense, but for whatever reason, we have you know certain individuals have uh, had emotional ties to these tools that we use, and then they become you know I think certain perspectives make them seem like they're more useful in certain circumstances than other perspectives, and maybe that's where we have issues as far as you know the, the arguments that come about or certain issues that we have with certain exercises but you know i think it's just the perspective that makes you seem like okay this was a good tool to utilize in this circumstance versus this is a bad tool to utilize in this circumstance and it's hard to make that judgment on instagram just because you have no idea one you're making very flash judgments about one this individual's perspective and two the context of the situation that they find themselves making the decision in. So I, I try to do that as little as possible. Obviously we all fall uh, victim to that mindset, which you know, it is what it is. But So I think, um, you know, a lot, like a lot of the people we talk to on this show, as well as just kind of how me and Michelle are, like we tend to talk a lot in abstraction and not a lot with like concrete situations. Absolutely. Um, Cause I, I think we all like to think and we all like to talk about thinking. What would be, what would be in your mind the most appropriate context in which to utilize a barbell back squat? Um, the, so the first thing that comes to mind is uh, an individual that you're actually trying to reduce a degree of uh, rotation. So any, any heavy loading in of itself is going to reduce rotation just because that in, in order to be successful with that lift, you want to uh, deviate. Your bar path doesn't want to deviate too much from how it started to begin with, right? So any sort of rotation is going to be deleterious to that effect. And so anyone who, you know, if we're trying to take transfer of that task to another one, Anyone that doesn't want to rotate that much, it would be a pretty good idea to barbell back squat them. So obviously power lifters would be the most specific, but even someone who's like a defensive lineman or an offensive lineman, even more specifically an offensive lineman who is doing more pass blocking, they don't need as much rotation for that uh, activity. Um, Someone who's trying to be the anchor on a tug of war team for the Olympics, that would be another good idea to have them do back squats or heavy uh, deadlifts or anything like that. But then you also run the risk of 
taking away a degree of movement from them that might be useful just in so far as distributing enough load for their activity so they're not getting focal loading anywhere and that's really that's really the the tightrope that you'd have to walk with them so it could be useful for them as far as performance but understand that you're just taking away motion from them that's all i mean i think this is an excellent segue to talk about something that i would say in part i learned from you and, and have really adopted into my practice in a large way but like the monitoring of available motion so like in your in your back squat analogy it's like if if someone were to take like me right like six feet tall 160 pounds soaking wet like i've gone on barbell back squat cycles before and i've gotten for my frame fairly strong but it's like what you know if, if you had to take a stab at this like what ranges of motion might I have preferentially lost potentially in what order, potentially to what magnitude from like heavy, repetitive, high volume barbell back squatting? Um, I mean, just knowing your history and how, you know, in the past we've tried to chase hip internal rotation for you, that would probably be one of the main ones that you would lose as far as continually doing a lot of the, the barbell back squatting. Why? So even with just the, the structure of your pelvis, um, so you're more of a narrowed individual, so the acetabulum is more retroverted, so you're less likely to be able to demonstrate an internal rotation movement there to begin with. But then once you have to layer on uh, stiffness or loading because of the degree of um, weight being put upon your body for an extended period of time, so throughout the course of a set, the number of sets, whole loading cycle, take all of the musculature of your body and then squeeze it even harder. And that would result in a more retroverted position of your acetabulum to begin with. But you'd probably also lose you know, hip flexion to a certain degree or hip flexion that you demonstrate at the actual acetabulum rather than you know some other, some other area where you'd compensate through it. Um, Interrotation, obviously. Straight leg raise would be another one that uh, you'd probably be uh, deleterious as far as like losing it from that, from that activity, things like that. Um, I guess the upper body, we could go with like a horizontal adduction or shoulder flexion or I guess pretty much everything. <laughs> In that, and do me a favor, keep your mouth close to your microphone. Um, oh, sorry. Nah, you're good. As long as you're facing the camera, you're all good. Sorry, uh, I don't have Rogan's like other guy. Like I don't have just like a buddy hanging out in the closet, like Amy. looking things up. <laughs> at least not, at least not Pretty yet. Sweet. Like stay not tuned yet. for season two. I am accepting applications for that position. It is. Don't invite me on another podcast until you have one of those. Yeah. It's going to be an entirely unpaid internship with absolutely no promise of upward advancement. But if you're interested, Tim Richard DPT on Instagram. <laughs> Um, so with the upper body motion restrictions coming from a barbell back squat, that would have a lot to do with just the, like I've heard you speak about kind of like posterior compression of the thorax, correct? Mm -hmm. Like, so, so that would kind of lead to a predictable loss of, you mentioned flexion, internal rotation, horizontal adduction. Yeah. So, so take the, uh, take the, the shape of your body as it is now, and then put it underneath a barbell and try and demonstrate the shape 
that's typical of a barbell back squat. So you'd have your hands all the way back here. You'd probably stick your chest out a little bit. But then as you load the system, it's not just like legs that are being loaded. It's literally from the top of your head down to your tippy toes. It has to generate an increased uh, amount of stiffness just to not collapse under the continuous weight of the barbell. So every single muscle within your body is going to generate more stiffness, some more than others, depending on the area of the loading, uh, the distribution of it, your center of gravity, et cetera, et cetera. But then you pretty much just get a mental image of what that person is looking like underneath the barbell, the degree of stiffness of their tissue. And then you lay them on the table in that position or it's something that's similar to that and you try and go through a scenario in your head of like okay if they're presenting literally like this what motions would they potentially gain what motions would they potentially lose things like that so if you arch your back real hard and you increase the stiffness of your tissue you'd probably potentially pick up a little bit of uh, shoulder external rotation especially for someone like you if you're more narrow you'd probably orient your uh, thorax a little bit more posteriorly and your pelvis a little bit more anteriorly as you're trying to do the back squat then lay that person on the table and their shoulders automatically going to go back a little bit farther um, relative to the table because that's what you're taking the, the measurement from your objective measurement from and again like that's hypothetical you could have someone who's squeezing really hard on the front and able to actually adduct their humor eye a little bit more so more of like that not narrow high bar back squat that's not going to create as much of the posterior orientation of the thorax so it kind of depends on how you're doing it too yeah and i mean this is this is kind of selfishly like why why i love talking to you because i think you know like for for most of my life in the fields of both strength conditioning and physical therapy, it was like getting stronger was an absolute good, right? Sure. It's like it's like problems just seem to go away if we just get people stronger. Like, oh, you're Slow a slow runner? Me. Like, yeah, like just, like just get stronger, right? And it was like no one, and I guess like in kind of the PRI sphere, people were, people were kind of talking about this notion of like, you might be able to train yourself into this like overactive PEC type pattern. Right. But it was like kind of just in that silo and no one else was talking about the potential, the potential secondary consequences of pursuing like barbell strength activities. And especially when we're trying to manage people that are trying to move well for life or sport, it's like this becomes so huge. And I feel like a lot of the people that you and I work with, especially remote, like people that seek us out, it's people that have pursued this barbell stuff for sure. way too long of a time. And then you and I have to do the work of like, like getting kind of getting them back and like un undoing those patterns. I mean, it, it comes down to whatever they want in life, right? And who they are and what they're trying to achieve. You take someone who is, you know, untrained and a slow distance runner and maybe increasing stiffness is useful for them to improve their performance. And they might have enough movement to the point where it, the secondary consequences of those movements isn't as much of an issue, especially if you revolve other aspects of their training around things that will um, 
negate some of those consequences of the, the heavy loaded stuff. Maybe you don't even need that much. Maybe those exercises don't come in the way of like laying down and breathing. Maybe it's just like, hey, have better form on your unilateral stuff. Do more specific throws. Uh, do more specific plyometric stuff. It doesn't have to be all that, um, you know, low and slow crap. It could be a bunch of other things depending on who they are. Um, but sure, I think, I think, you know, something that Bill certainly highlighted in my eyes as far as just understanding there's, there's specific adaptations to certain training effects or certain training modalities and they're going to be a little bit more specific for certain individuals. Being able to at least recognize that and monitor them and having uh, strategies to negate some of that stuff just becomes very valuable. And I don't, I don't think it's really anything crazy. It's just a matter of, you know, seeing what adaptations could be elicited through any kind of training modality. And so I think people always wanted to look at the good side of things, but there's certainly always maladaptive things as well, right? You know, eating a lot of food creates certain adaptations that are potentially helpful for someone. So if someone's starving and they have low energy stores, eating a lot of food is very useful for them. But then eventually that adaptation becomes maladaptive, especially in our world, and it becomes obesity and it becomes a disease that we need to control. So now we just have more effective ways or more effective perspectives of understanding when those uh, interventions become deleterious. So it's literally just like, you know, would you have your obese client try and eat more food? Why not? Okay, would you have your um, strength coach client who's really struggling with knee pain or hip pain, who's been back squatting for the past, you know, 10 years and has extremely stiff soft tissue and extremely stiff movement, would you have them continue back squatting? Maybe if that's really what they want and they still want to do that, but you know, you need to have the the conversation with them, you know, the grown up conversation with them of like, look, dude, this is what's happening. Most likely because of some of these interventions that you've been doing to yourself. And if you, you're, you're a grown up, you can make whatever decision you want. You can do whatever you want with your life, but just understand that if you keep doing this, this will probably continue to happen to you. Same thing with your overweight individual. It's like, I'm not trying to fat shame anyone, but it's like, hey, let's look at your calorie count as far as what you're eating, how much of it you're eating. And then is this useful for you as far as what you want to achieve in your life? Yeah, I mean, like with that specific example, it just, you know, like I've definitely been there and I feel like a lot of people listening to this have been there where you get the referral for a patient with low back pain and they're, you know, 350, 400 pounds. Right. And that, that individual comes into your office, you know, hey, you fix me. Like I've been told that you can fix back pain. Right. And I think earlier in my career, I was incredibly uncomfortable with the notion of like, well, you know, with the amount of just chronic compression, all of your tissues are under, as well as the fact that humans don't gain adipose tissue in a very neat manner, like most of it's going (laughs) to be carried anteriorly, and you have extension sensitive back pain. It's like, 
there is no like everything that we are doing at this point in time from an exercise standpoint is probably going to be pissing in the wind and if you want to if you want to lob some you know like like intellectual and emotional effort at something it's like get kind of get your diet and get your lifestyle under control yeah and it's i mean it's just super like i love the i love the hammer and nail analogy because it removes a lot of the emotion that people could potentially carry around with like like certain patterns of living certain patterns of eating certain patterns of training it's like what you've been doing to get you to this point has clearly not been working I know you'd like to think that you can just add on something and not actually do the hard work of changing a thing in your life, but probably 70 or 80% of your situation is because of the things that you have been doing. Right. I think, I think it's useful to, to look at exercise as just physical activity. And we kind of have this emotional bias of anything that's labeled as exercise equals, you know, good for health. You know what I mean? Which I certainly am not discouraging like physical activity or anything like that, but just the same as we view anything else as just a, like you said, a lifestyle habit movement or your physical activity is just another lifestyle habit. And it'll have, it'll have effects. We just need to understand what the effects are and what kind of effects we're going after. Same, same thing as with your diet, same thing as with sleeping, same thing as with your, your social life. It just has a specific effect. That's all. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think that again, like coming, coming from the place of like loading is good. Lifting is good. Exercise is good. This is a way more nuanced approach to take to your own training or like helping your people better. Yeah. I think the, that perspective of load equals good. It's like, sure. I want people to move but it's just way too vague of a notion to, to, for it to be as helpful as it could be. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, you know, like you and I both work with a variety of people. Like we see people on the incredibly low end of the performance continuum to people that are incredibly on the high end, but like kind of suffering the health consequences. Sure. I, this is something I like I've talked about with Michelle, but, do you feel that the strategy of being incredibly particular with what lifts you prescribe to people and then monitoring ranges of motion, do you feel like that might sometimes engender more of like a fragile mindset? Depending on who they are and how you're doing it and how you're coaching them. Sure. I'll have a much more specific approach for certain individuals, um, whether it's their activity. So, all right, working with a professional baseball pitcher and he has skin as tough as a rhinoceros, but he's also got significant movement limitations. I'm not going to be as worried about creating a fragile mindset with that individual. And I'm also going to put more emphasis on being a little bit more particular about how he does lifts why he's doing certain lifts, when he's doing certain lifts, and not uh, worrying so much about him being like, oh no, like as I set back into my hip, I didn't do it the right way and therefore my shoulder is going to explode. Just based on his personality, he's not going to have that same effect as opposed to someone else who 
you know, has 30 years of low back pain plus an anxiety disorder, then I'm going to be a little bit more particular about, okay, how am I going to coach this exercise? The variety of exercises I'm going to give them, the types of exercises I'm going to give them. Maybe I'll give them lower load and a wider range of things that are still trying to achieve the same kind of movement stuff that I'm doing, but I'm not going to be as, you know, I'm going to say to them, okay, go do this body weight activity and go do like three sets of 10. And okay, that looks good enough. And there's not enough load to where I'm that worried about uh, anything that deleterious happening to them. So I don't have to be as specific about getting in their grill about how they're doing certain things. And that enables them to just move and to not have to think about it as much. Whereas, you know, once we get to a certain point with them, maybe I do want to load them a little bit more, but certain aspects of their uh, movement system have a little bit more resiliency that can offset the lack of resiliency that their mental system has, right? So yeah. I might be a little bit more closeted about uh, my reasons for them and I won't be as transparent with them about certain things, but that's just changing your coaching style depending on who you're working with. It's, it's super, I, I, I think all that is incredibly interesting and it's like, you know, just by way of personal example, I've pretty much always had my own practice in a CrossFit gym. Like this is the third CrossFit gym now. Shout out to Taylor Upton and Colorado Fitness and Strength. Um, I guess no longer a CrossFit gym, but still CrossFit-y. But like the, you know, the one thing that those types of gyms, or at least all the ones I've been affiliated with, have all done a really good job of is like getting people to not feel fucking fragile. And it's like good coaching is paramount. They all had biomechanical standards, but you know, surely they weren't perfect by, you know, March, 2021 Tim's estimation. But what they were really good at was getting people to not fear positions, loads, velocities. And it's like, if I have to choose between a person that doesn't move that well, but just isn't afraid to fucking get after it. And a person that, only moves very pristinely, but doesn't ever explore the limits of what their body can do. It's like you and I both know that first person is way, way, like way better off as a human and far more of a joy to work with as a clinician. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, you, you certainly have to have a biomechanical standard, especially if you're working with someone who does have that more fragile mindset, because otherwise they're, that, that's more so for like their own mental state of like, oh, this person doesn't even have standards and they can, they're okay with me doing whatever the hell they want. That scares me more than them enabling me to do whatever motion I want. So there's, there's certain boundaries that you need to have for people to just give them a sense of security. But I think, yeah, CrossFit has done a great job insofar as like pushing people to their limits within uh, those boundaries. And sometimes it's useful for those people and it's not. Hopefully that's why they have a guy like you to, you know, at least maintain those boundaries for that individual. But yeah, it's a fantastic uh, endeavor for them just like mentally, as far as like empowering them to move however the hell they want. Right. Yeah. Well, and there's also, there's this thing of like internal and external cueing, right. Where it's like the amount of sensory motor awareness that I would like myself or a client to have with an individual drill is going to vary depending upon what the goal of the drill is. 
Sure. So it's like, I, I just wrote a client a program yesterday and the dude's been in chronic back pain for a while. So it's like 60 or 70% of what we're doing is putting him more in his own body so he can feel what his body is doing. Sure. And it's like, we're not progressing load. We're not progressing velocity. If anything, the progression over a four week period is just the feel of the drill. Right. He's a remote client, so I can't table test him, but like I, I would expect to see some improvements there. But then I was sure like the other 30% of his program, like I want him doing things that feel like training where he's not worrying about like a specific hip tuck or hip shift or breathing pattern. Cause I'm not trying to create a permanent rehab client. Right. I think, um, I think this is just where my head's at recently, especially for that person, but I almost like to utilize, uh, throws or jumps, uh, with certain parameters as far as like direction of force applied that puts them into those positions anyway, or at least like approximates the ones that we've been working on. But the fact that you have to utilize velocity and you're thinking more about like direction of the force applied, it, it forces them to be more external as opposed to internal. So I'm getting what I want as far as like a, uh, the shape of their body that they're creating as they're performing the exercise. And then it's also beneficial for them to just get them out of their head. And it's just like, Hey, move fast, move with some aggression, but we're still getting into certain positions that I really like. So that, that that's where I've kind of been utilizing those exercises for, for that kind of person. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think I, you and I probably, like I've probably asked you a question somewhat around feet being straight or not like 10 to 15 <laughs> times in like the two years that we've known each other. Right. Like it's something like I, I am neurotic about this. I obsess about this. Right. And I really like, I credit uh, you and David Gray, who I'll, who I'll link to in the show notes for like really making me feel empowered enough to like explore doing things, namely running without perfectly straight feet, which right. in terms of health and performance has been a game changer for me. But it was like coming from this very rigid biomechanical model of like, when we do things for the purpose of regaining range of motion, we would like straight feet. And I still think that that statement is true, but it's like at a certain point, and I was pursuing performance running at the time, like, you know, trying to train for the 800. It's like, you're, you're, you have to let your body self-organize. Like you have to think about the, the actual demands of the performance task, the life task, let go of the constraints and your body's going to do what it does. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. FMS, FRC, PRI, AED, NSFW, the world, specifically the industries of physical therapy and strength conditioning, is filled with confusing acronyms, certifications, and jargon. If you find that you've taken a metric shitload of these types of courses, but have no ability to carry the information over into your practice, you don't need more information. You need a mentor someone to act as a sounding board, someone to guide you towards putting seemingly disparate parts of the movement and health puzzle together, someone to help you develop your own model that you can immediately put into action. While I certainly don't claim to know everything, I'm happy to serve in that role. My one-on-one -on -one mentorship calls are 60 minutes and will leave you with a clearer, more confident idea of how to best leverage what you already know in order to best help the next client that walks through your door. Stop collecting piles of three-ring binders and start taking a more active role in your professional development. Find out more by going to timrichart.com slash services. And now, back to the show. Yeah. Based on, based on who you are, what kind of 
biomechanics you have available to you, there's going to be a better position to just uh, transfer force throughout your body, especially from the foot up into the, into the rest of the body. So I, I've got a decent uh, case example uh, to, to not have a straight foot. Okay. And, it, and it's a pretty obvious one. So I had a, a woman come into the clinic. She just had her knee replaced. Okay. And so with knee replacements, they try and align the prosthetic to pretty much like the proximal half of the tibia or at least like the tibial plateau anyway, right? So it's, it's quote-unquote straight and quote-unquote aligned, right? But I don't think there's too much uh, attention placed on the distal half of that tibia or as far as how they're presenting with their, with their feet, right? So this woman came in, had her knee replaced, but also had a spiral fracture of her tibia and fibula uh, two years prior to the knee replacement, which led to some of the knee issues that she was having. So she had an external rotated distal tibia because of the spiral fracture. And then the, the proximal half of the tibia was more internally rotated. And then because of the, the line of the fracture, it decreases the amount of bend and twist that the bone can create just because it's it's scarred bone as opposed to more healthy bone okay and so her own movement capabilities was she really couldn't get her left foot to face straight because of that new anatomical constraint that her body had and so all of the exercises that i typically would tell people okay i'm trying to get you on train tracks right i'm trying to get your your foot, your knee, your hip, your shoulder, it's all kind of being aligned for this one right now. She couldn't do that because of the, the change in her anatomy. So we just got it to the next best thing where, you know, her foot had to be out a little bit and we were still able to gain a decent amount of motion through her hip and her shoulder. And she felt fine with that. It's like, okay. And I think that's something that I'm exploring a little bit more too. It's just like, rather than forcing them into like this, everything has to be straight. It's just like figure out where they're at and what is the boundary as far as the, the motion that they're able of creating and put them closer to that boundary as opposed to forcing them into a specific position that isn't going to be useful for them. And then if we want to continue to push that boundary further and further, if it's needed for them, let's keep doing it. If not, we're getting a decent effect. We just gained a little bit of motion and they feel better doing this exercise, maybe that's all I need to do for that person for it to be effective. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more with what you said. And I mean, even like simple stuff, like if you look at going back to like the performance realm about this, about this feet stuff, you look at a dead on shot of like an Olympic 100 meter final, and there is there's not a straight foot to be had in the whole oh, thing. No. And you and I have talked about this and like you, you have a hypothesis that like that externally rotated foot will enable more backside push, which is going to, yeah. which is going to yield more horizontal displacement, which is exactly what you're trying to do. I think, um, especially for that individual too. So the, the foot is a very transverse plane oriented, uh, everything is right. But the, the foot especially, and I think especially with the, the 100 meters where you only have, was it, 0 0.07 seconds to put force into the ground, and that force needs to have a rotational direction to it, 
the, the position of that foot is going to self-organize in order to best transfer that force throughout the entire system. So if that person doesn't have amazing relative motion through a subtalar joint that automatically will create that twist of the direction of force, they're just going to orient the foot to be a little bit more uh, externally rotated to have the orientation create the transverse plane motion that they need to push up the rest of the body. That makes sense. Ba based on, based on how they're already presenting, right? So if they already have more of a retroverted acetabulum, they don't have those relative motions available to them. That's going to be the next best thing. for them. And they probably don't want to have that because you need to be stiff as hell to be an effective hundred meter runner anyway. Yeah, I mean, the other thing, you know, that I've been playing around, again, like, with myself, with my clients, is, like, you, and this is a concept that I'm directly stealing from, from Bill, and I'll link to Bill in the show notes, but, like, every interact... <laughs> your, your show notes is going to be a, a goddamn essay at the end of this. I, I say that, and the funny thing is, Michelle has yet to teach me how to actually type in the show notes, so what I'm, <laughs> what I'm, what I'm really going to do is give Michelle an email of, like, these are the show notes. These are the things I need to do. Yeah. All right, correct yourself and be like, Michelle, put this in the show notes. Please. <laughs> but um, no, I mean, every interaction with the ground standing against gravity is going to be internal rotation biased because that's like, that's how, that's how that force needs to go into the ground to keep you from crumbling. So right. like in my mind, what it feels like is if my feet are completely straight, I've taken up internal rotation already. And now I don't have as much internal rotation potential to to interact with the ground with. And I think, you know, I watch old videos of me running with straight feet and it's like, there is no stride length to be had. Right. Because there's, there's so much less available room with which to internally rotate through. And I think working with you, it's like allowing feet to rotate out. I can actually start to feel what you describe as like that pressure wave that sort of emanates like from the foot to the contralateral shoulder and like disperse that rotation over a much longer period of time. So I, I think because, you know, because I have a little bit more contextual knowledge on you, the, the amount of relative motion you have within structures, so within a foot, uh, at the knee, within the pelvis, is limited. So you need to utilize orientations to create the same direction of force. So that limits the number of links within the, the chain as far as creating um, motion. But as you bring the foot closer and closer towards midline, it at least uh, potentially gives the people the ability to demonstrate relative motion within those structures. So you have a better chance of getting relative subtalar motion if a foot's straight as opposed to if it's out in this direction, right? Um, but if you don't have the capacity to demonstrate that and you only utilize orientations of whole structures, so of, of a whole foot, of a whole leg, of a whole pelvis, then that'll take away your capacity to even generate that force, especially if you don't have the, the relative motions available to you. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, what it really makes me think of is like if you're managing someone with femoroacetabular impingement syndrome, a good way to fuck up their rehab is to make sure they never do anything with straight feet. And a good way to fuck up their life is to recommend that they only do things with straight feet. 
Right. If they can't demonstrate that, that's like forcing people into certain positions that they're just not ready to handle. Right. So maybe if the, the rehab went well enough to where, okay, that this person's grooving, they're demonstrating really good subtalar motion. They're demonstrating really good sacroiliac motion. Then, okay. I'm, I'm more likely to have uh, a successful outcome with a particular exercise if I orient them in this position. And, and this is the exact reason why I'm like, you know, for your more like A to P squished people, I'm kind of playing with more like lateral lunge stuff because there's less relative motion that needs to be available. And that's kind of where their acetabulum are facing anyway. And I'm kind of playing around with that and seeing, okay, does this help me slowly regain more relative motion as I take them from a lateral position. Now I start doing like a 45 degree position or even less than that. Like a, I'm almost thinking about like the face of a clock. So I have people moving from like three to nine then I might have people moving from, you know, four to seven or something like that, you know, and then slowly bringing them back to that like 12 to six position that, you know, more of the relative motion would be uh, needed for. You're talking about that that as a strategy to potentially recapture range of motion? Yeah, so if their boundary for relative motion is out in that six to nine range. Sure. And I slowly, so like their, the, the bandwidth is only in this tiny little ray, right? So then I slowly bring them back in to really demonstrate more of that relative motion. Do I get more success with them? I don't know. I'm playing yeah. around with it. I'm seeing if it's more useful. So like Justin right now is doing more lateral lunge stuff. And, and at the time I thought that that was kind of like a progression for him. But now from how he's presenting right now, I'm thinking like, okay, maybe the reason that we're having success with this right now is because, you know, that's, that's where I should have started with him instead of uh, thinking that this was going to be a progression for him. And maybe, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I mean, that's a super interesting concept. That almost makes me think instead of starting a rehab client with a narrow straight foot squat, you sort of pick a halfway point between that and where they're actually at. So it's like most of my client, a lot of my clients right now are, are CrossFitters and strength athletes. So it's like you ask them to demonstrate a body weight squat and they will self-select most of the time feet substantially wider than shoulder and substantially towed out. Yep. And I think, you know, extrapolating what you just said, it would be, it would be interesting if instead of giving my typical shoulder width uh, feet straight ahead to recapture movement, it's like split the difference and see if exactly. that might get ranges of motion quicker. Exactly. I, I, I feel like I've been taking too big of leaps as far as like, okay, this is where I need to get them to. Let me just start them there. As opposed to they're not even close to being there yet. Maybe I need to, and, and we've all seen that, especially like if I'm coaching someone in like a staggered stance position, they're doing like cable stuff and it's way too narrow of a stance and they're just flopping all over the place and having trouble like managing their center of gravity. Okay, bring their feet out a little bit. Just have them split, widen their base of support. It looks better. It feels better. When I retest them, it, it demonstrates more motion of what I want as opposed to what I was getting before. It's like, okay. And, and it's not like we're talking about it like it's a crazy, like advanced concept, but it's like, no, I'm just being better at like matching where they're actually at. You know what I mean? Right. That's all. That's all. It's I'm like, it's like. At. It's like taking someone that struggles to run 
you know, six 30 minute miles, but wants to run like a 17 minute 5k, right? Like, you know, like substantially faster. And then just being like, all right, we're just going to start running that pace. We're just yeah. going to just fuck it. Just, we're going to just, we're going to do that thing. Like, no, nah, that's exactly. never how that's been done. Exactly. It's like, it's like I think people, and, and this is how like the pendulum swings all the time. It's like, um, you know, it goes all the way in one direction and we think that this is this amazing concept and then it eventually swings in the other direction. I think to just reduce some of that, it's like, Hey, just like calm down. It's not like simplify it a little bit more. It's not that crazy or advanced of an idea. Like we've kind of been doing this already. It's just, you know, taking that concept and applying it in a better, uh, fashion, I guess. But yeah, it's, it's funny. Yeah, but this is like, this is why movement screens and table tests are so important and more people in our field need to be utilizing them more frequently because you don't know, like if you're having an athlete do a drill like that, that, that like split, you know, the split squat position that you were talking about, like if you make a tweak so that now it's more comfortable and looks better, but it doesn't yield any range of motion improvements, well, you've given them an effective compensation, which could be a really nice strategy if they want to just keep training and feel good. But if your aim is to regain range of motion, you wouldn't know unless you tested. Right. And I'm even, and it potentially also matters as far as like what your tests for range of motion are to begin with, because maybe they aren't even appropriate for that individual. So this, this is another thing that I'm kind of messing around with too, is like trying to match my assessment uh, more so for how they're presenting and what, what their stru uh, structure lends them to. So and I, I'm still use, using like a hip flexion measurement, but if they're under like 90 degrees of hip flexion, how valuable is an internal rotation and external rotation measurement in that position? I'm still going to utilize it and it's still going to give me decent information but I'm going to have the understanding that like, okay, if they can't even get there to begin with now, maybe my, what, what my KPI should be is a hip flexion measurement, or maybe it should be like their, their internal external rotations or and for specifically talking about a hip, maybe it's supposed to be at um, more of like a Faber or a fader position where it's not full hip flexion. Maybe they just, okay. Is it easier for you to get into like that Faber position? Maybe that's more appropriate hip external rotation measurement for you same thing with like a knee so if i have someone who can't even get into knee flexion why am i really cranking them into knee flexion and then testing uh tibial er and ir maybe like leave them at like 70 degrees of knee flexion and test it there is that a more appropriate uh, demonstration for them it's like um remember like open pack and closed pack position in school like i'm I'm seeing if like I need to bring someone more towards that open packed position to get a better representation of their, their motion because someone who's really limited, they're most likely to get more of that motion from that open packed position as opposed to any other position or, or just figuring out where their, their hip socket is and testing it there to see, okay, are we getting more motion than are we expanding the bandwidth of motion from that, that, uh, more rudimentary position, I guess. I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. No, I mean, I, I like that quite a bit. And it's like with your hip, you know, testing hip internal rotation at 90 degrees of hip flexion. And this is going to be a nice segue to talk about like the model 
at large, because I know we're, we're kind of running, running out of time here, but it's like with that hip flexion example, if 90 degrees of hip flexion is actually that person's 135 degrees of hip flexion, sure. then you're no longer checking hip IR and ER at what you think is 90 degrees of hip flexion yeah, it becomes the starting position is completely altered. So those IR and ER numbers become a little garbagey. So it's like what, what you're advocating for is this, well, let's like, let's ratchet that down because probably what they're dealing with is an acetabulum that's not positioned like a textbook would say it should be. Right. So they might, they might not even be limited in hip IR, ER, although they probably are, but you don't know because they can't get to what you think is 90 degrees hip flexion. I, I think people, people, uh, I don't need, it's not the right word, but they try and utilize norms and they try and value norms more than they should be. Whereas like, okay, where is this person at relative to the norm? Well, maybe it's more so just figuring out where this person is. And as long as your assessment process is doing that and not trying to push them more towards a norm and it's enabling you to understand, okay, this is going to yield better results. This is going to be a better KPI for them this is going to be a more effective exercise for them in regards to what they're trying to accomplish rather than trying to get them to whatever norm you care about. And I, I still utilize norms. I still want, you know, an, an idea of, okay, this is at least going to give them more motion in certain aspects, but you know, maybe it's the amount of motion that is necessary for this person isn't going to be as much as the amount of motion necessary for another person to accomplish what we're trying to accomplish. I'm speaking like very abstractly and esoterically right now. I know it's better to have a more concrete example for this. Let me see if I can. So no, let's, let's, let me ask you this really quick and feel free to interrupt me if a concrete example springs to mind and you want to talk about that, but like, let's take a, let's take hip internal rotation as an example. So you and I, you and I are both doctorally trained physical therapists. We both, you know, graduated within the, you know, whether it was like six or seven years ago for me, it was a couple years ago for you. Um, In a classical model, if we see limited hip internal rotation, you would mobilize a hip posteriorly potentially inferiorly and you might stretch some of the musculature that does external rotation right and that according to you know a lot of what we're taught would yield improved hip internal rotation and merriment and joy would ensue (laughs) so you know talk about and i'm just picking hip internal rotation because i know it's something that you and i think about a lot like talk about what limited hip internal rotation could be according to the model that you practice and then what interventions might look like? I mean, for, and I think this is a key concept because for each individual, the, the there's going to be a multi variable uh, situation as to why they're limited in that specific measurement. And that's why, you know, I love what Bill taught me as far as like, Okay, take all these different range of motions and see how uh, the structure or the shape of their body needs to demonstrate those motions and how they're all interacting within one another. And then also understand, okay, what's the age of this person? What and that would be, are- just for the benefit of the listener, that would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like we're looking hip flexion extension, IR, ER, adduction, abduction. Uh, hip shoulder internal rotate so like yesterday i'm working with a 15 year old volleyball player 
my KPI for her was left hip flexion, but she was coming to see me for right shoulder issues. And the way that she was presenting was insofar as that her, the position of her pelvis was limiting left hip flexion to an extent that I know if we improve that, we're improving the, the position of her pelvis and we're going to improve the position of her shoulder to make it more beneficial to one, get just active range of motion shoulder flexion, but two, also get, generate enough internal rotation through her right upper extremity where she can actually put force through a volleyball and not have it cause pain in the top of her shoulder. So it's, it's, a, it's an entire system-wide uh, assessment process. So um, it's, again, like hip flexion is not hip flexion. Hip internal rotation is not hip internal rotation. Like those are, these are not isolated. And I'm, again, I'm speaking in absolutes and probably there are cases I know, I know recently, like I've started to do banded hip mobilization type stuff on my hips again, and it feels nice. So it's like those things are valuable, Yeah, but you know, I think to juxtapose how we currently practice with what is taught in most conventional DPT curriculums, it's like you, you need to think about what the starting position, what you define the orientation of the thing even is. And right. most, most times it's nowhere close to the assumption that people make as to the starting position of the thing. No. And you can kind of even just like look at the person and say, okay, like one of my main initial assessments on someone when they're laying on the table, it's like, where are their feet? Like where are their feet facing? And then I have an idea of like where that entire side of their body is facing versus where this entire side of their body is facing and what kind of forces throughout their body had to result in that kind of presentation. So it's not, again, it's like a, a hip measurement is not a hip measurement. It's a, it's a, think of it like um, it's a thumbnail for a whole video. So it gives you like a little bit of a snapshot as to what perspective you should have on that video. And then you could, you know, I guess like your experience and things like that will dictate like the resolution of the pixels of the thumbnail and things like that, or how many variables you have for that person gives you a, a more concrete resolution. And then if you get all the ranges of motion, maybe you see a trailer of the, of the video if you work with someone for over a year, then you have a, a longer uh, trailer for that, for that individual. You, you see what I'm saying? Um, but yeah, I don't, it's, I mean, as far as what school taught us, like it's much more of a reductionist approach as well as they don't even go into all of the other variables that would be part of that reductionist approach. So even if there's like arthritis present within that area of the system, my norms change and how much motion I'm expecting to recapture for this person changes. So here's a more concrete example of what we were talking about. It's like, you know, you get a 85-year-old man who's had low back pain for the past 30 years he's got negative 10 degrees of hip internal rotation and he's got 40 degrees of hip flexion before his leg starts to deviate out and you get almost like this hip impingement e feeling to the end feel if i get that guy 80 degrees of hip flexion without that deviation that is a massive difference for that person who's just trying to walk around and stand up without back pain as opposed to the person who is uh, 32 and trying to throw a fastball for the next four years. The, the amount of change and the kind of change 
and the, the norms or the numbers that I'm pursuing for that person is going to be drastically different between the two. And the extent of change that I'm trying to create for that person is going to be different as well. So it's, who are you? What are you trying to accomplish? What are all these other variables that I need to understand? Think, things like that. It's, it's complicated. But and and but to, talk, to talk about the multivariate input in terms of limited range of motion or even just clinical observation, mm -hmm. like, you know, we'll see toe out on both sides, but a very common reason for the right foot to be towed out is that the entire body is in a right facing orientation. Maybe we'll see, we'll see left toe out and a very common reason why we'll, why we'll see that is that the entire left posterior side of the body is squeezing and every, and things can't relax. So it's just Maybe. externally rotated. So it's like, that's a very common presentation where the same fucking presentation would have two different interventions. Right. If I try to shift more into my right hip during a rear foot elevated split squat. I feel worse, not better. If I try to shift more into my left hip during the same activity, I feel better, not worse. So it's like the interventions for the same clinical observation, when you take a little bit more of a broader model of the things that could be impacting performance, position, how something looks, and table tests, like, right. like you can do way more things than just like, let's stretch a piriformis, let's mobilize a hip. Right. And, and again, that's kind of why I'm, I, I love what Bill's taught me in so far as like his experience has enabled him to understand what are some variables that are going to influence these measurements and then which variables can I control. So even, even if someone does have arthritic changes, it's like I, I can't do a goddamn thing about that. I'm not a surgeon. Maybe they do need surgery based on how much motion they do need to eventually recapture. If that variable is, I mean, you and I have talked about that pie chart of variables. It's like everything is finite and there is a, a finite number of variables, but the um, extent to which each of those variables are influencing the, the presentation as a whole is going to be different. Understanding the weight that each variable has on that system is going to be different from person to person for each variable. We're still trying to chase hip flexion, but this person also has a fusion of L345 and it's fused into more of like a extended position and you're not going to be able to change the orientation of their pelvis. That The weight of that variable that's influencing that measurement is greatly more compounded than anything that I'm going to be able to control. And... That's one frustration that I'm currently having right now with some of my spinal fusion patients. But not, Campo, not what about pigeon stretches? Them. We can do that. We can try. So th there's a certain there's a certain extent as far as like soft tissue limitation creating the presentation that we see. So so then it becomes that becomes a situation. It's like okay, you have this much weight for this specific variable influencing your presentation. If we squeak away at the other 20% of those other variables that are influencing you, is it enough for you and for the activities you're trying to accomplish to have enough of a positive effect on you? Maybe we got to give it a shot. If not, 
uh, sorry to tell you, but I'm, I'm out of options as far as how I can help you based on my scope of practice. And sometimes I struggle with that because it's like, is it just me being inadequate as far as the interventions I'm trying to do? Or is it literally the point of which like, okay, we've actually tried everything and it literally doesn't help that person. When is it time to discharge them? When is it, when is it not? When is it time to call it quits? When is it not? I'm certainly come from the vein of like, I don't want to call it quits because I don't want to admit defeat because I don't want to, I don't know when to admit I've done everything for that person that I can knowing that I could have done something a little bit better and it could have made the difference for them. I would, I would hate myself if that were the case, but sometimes it is. I just need to figure out when and acknowledge that. You know? And I, I mean, there's never going to be a, you know, you're never going to 100% know. Like that's so much of the art of what we do. Right. I think about like, you know, you've showed me that pie chart thing before when we talked about my hip thing a couple years back. And I think about my model, which I've talked about a bunch on this show where it's like, you know, ultimately the question is, why do I hurt? And you have like training habits, like volume and intensity. You have actual, like how you're doing the motion. So like running mechanics, lifting mechanics, and then you have this nebulous available range of motion concept. And it's like what you and I have talked about over the past 20 minutes is just how many potential variables could exist only in the range of motion domain. Like, right. is it capsule? Is it muscle? Is it position? Is it orientation? And I mean, I, I really think this is, and this is not to speak ill of the programs that trained us because I think they had to prepare us for boards. Sure. But it's like once you are out and practicing on your own, if anyone's listening to this that isn't familiar with who Bill is, like, like look at look at Bill Hartman on Instagram. Look at some of the exercises that he performed with his people and that people that follow him perform with their people. And then you'll start to get an appreciation for just how many potential inputs could positively impact someone's range of motion availability and potentially remove a pain experience. And, I, and I'd say to these people, it's like take it one step further and, and go back into some of your actual, some of your textbooks that, you know, no one reads, but are actually useful. <laughs> Because all they talk about is first principles as far as like, okay, these are the variables that science knows about that could potentially influence these things. And then having an understanding about all of those, you're able to build your list of, okay, what adaptations do I care about? Which ones can I control? Uh, how can I potentially control them? And that, that'll give you a far more comprehensive list of, of things at your, expo uh, at your, uh, at your uh, I don't know, what you can control, right? And, right? and this, but, you know, like a big problem in our field is burnout. And, you know, granted, like, you know, we don't get paid enough. Like, that's, that's a whole separate thing, right? Or well, school costs too much. Yeah. But like one of the, one of the big things with burnout is like, you know, we physical therapists get into this field because they really care about people. Mm -hmm. Right. And they really want to do right by their people. And when you just keep having bad outcomes over and over and over, that's a huge contributing factor to burnout. Right. And I think what you and I are both saying is, so there's, there's two big things here that have made me kind of like fall in love with this field even more over the past two years, utilization of table tests to actually be able to tell when you're making a difference and when you're just blowing smoke up everyone's ass. Right. So that those are the, that's the rule book by which you can then do whatever the fuck you want and then recheck to see if you made an actual difference. 
the other big thing is knowing just the magnitude of potential inputs that you could have an effect on that might still yield a useful outcome for a patient. But I think a lot of new grads get really frustrated when it's like, this person's coming to see me for hip pain. They have a limited hip internal rotation. I've mobilized every session, three sessions a week for the past four weeks. I've diligently mobilized their posterior capsule and they still don't have better hip internal rotation and they don't feel better. And now they're getting frustrated. Right. Yeah. It's a matter of just opening up your, your perspective to things that you can potentially influence or, or things that you can't. And you're never, again, you're never going to know which ones you can or cannot influence. It's just a matter of, uh, at least trying and then still utilizing resources to continue to accumulate more and more variables that you can potentially influence or having a more concrete view of those variables. So like uh, this is one pet peeve of mine, but like people talk about strengthening a lot within the traditional PT realm and, you know, trying to improve strength of a certain muscle or a certain movement, but then, you know, strength in of itself is being treated as a biological variable, which it's not. It's a concept that we created and it's really an amalgamation of like seven other different variables that are actually biologically concrete. Having a better understanding of what those variables are as opposed to just creating this arbitrary variable of strength would be a much better guide for someone, especially coming out of school and understanding, okay, Instead of calling it strength, maybe understanding one aspect of it is motor unit recruitment. What exercise, create an assessment that potentially can show they have decreased motor unit recruitment or a certain scenario where they might. So someone who's like fresh out of surgery and they're, and they're quote unquote weak, certainly part of it is going to be decreased motor unit recruitment. Well, how can I improve that? Okay. Like. There's nothing wrong with a, a straight leg raise for a ACL patient who can't fire their quad because they have decreased motor unit recruitment. I'm not strengthening a quad. I'm eliciting more of a, uh, an adaptation to the, the neuromusculature for that muscle. So it, it's not, it's take, taking your, your head out of the clouds as far as these abstractions or the, the vagueness and utilizing more of these concrete aspects to generate your own model. And again, I think Bill's done a great job of highlighting those things as far as getting people's heads out of the clouds and putting it more into like concrete, like this is anatomy, this is physiology, this is biomechanics. It's not just like made up concepts. Let's like ground it in something a little bit more concrete here, folks. Yeah, or like, you know, like glute training is some, something that everyone will be obsessed with from now till the end of time, right? And it's like, why can't you feel your glutes? Well, maybe because they're passively insufficient because you're starting from a position of hip flexion, right? Sure. And, it's like, and that's just one, one out of 30 potential reasons why that, right. why that situation might exist. But right. the fix to 29 out of 30 of those isn't to just like, well, do more glute work. Right. Yeah, school, school definitely tells us it depends and it's become such a cliche of like, oh, you're sick of hearing it depends in PT school. It's like, sure, but they never really talk to you about what it depends on. You know what I mean? Like that, 
that's another critical component. It's like, okay, like school can certainly acknowledge that like, yeah, it's, it's multifactorial. That's what they mean by it depends, but they don't, they don't give you a decent list of the variables that it actually depends on. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's important. We need to actually know about that. So. Well, I want to, I want to be respectful of your time. I know we're coming up on time here. So I, I want to give you the opportunity to have the last word. If there's any closing comments or summarizing comments or anything that you'd like to kind of bring up. I don't know. I mean, I guess to sum up the conversation, it's like, especially we've been on like this multivariable kick. It's like have an understanding that like, yeah, it depends, but at least start to also have an understanding of what it's going to depend on. And then the kind of assessment process that's going to help you understand when those variables are being an influence and then how much that they're an influence on. And that'll help at least uh, give your mental framework a little bit more of a, not a safety net, but almost like a, a capstone, not a capstone, a keystone to stabilize your thought process and your, and your uh, interventions on, I guess. Dr. Michael Camperini, where can the fine people learn more about you and the services that you offer? Um, you can follow me on Instagram at campo.dpt. Um, I don't really talk much about myself and I don't really talk much on social media anyway. I'm trying to get a little bit better at that. Um, I try and make more of my Instagram with like case studies and concrete examples rather than talking about more like these abstractions. It's like, all right, let's put it to use and that's useful for me as well to almost just like reflect on what I do. But if you're interested in that, I'll hopefully post more stuff. We'll see. So, <laughs> but yeah, you can always message me on there as well. So. Any, any services you're currently advertising or um, are you kind of full up? I will hopefully in the near future start more like online movement assessments and potentially programming depends on how much time I have available as well as, you know, trying to figure out that whole work-life balance, but follow me on Instagram and that's where I'll keep people posted on that. So when is the, um, Camperini delicatessen opening? <laughs> as soon as I get fired and I hate <laughs> physical therapy and I don't know what else to do. So I can't really open Campo PT and wellness because people will still come in looking for chicken salad. So it might just turn into a deli anyway. So, yeah. And if anyone in the greater Scottsdale, you're in Scottsdale, right? Uh, like Phoenix, Scottsdale. Yeah. If anyone in Arizona has some maybe underground mafia connections where Campo can get hooked up with like <laughs> the primest of prosciutto that the Southwest has to offer. I think that would be a step in a useful direction to Probably. making the best use of your last name that we possibly can. Yeah, that, that would certainly open a, a window of opportunity for me to get out of PT and get into uh, understanding all the variables that go into running a good deli and making a good uh, pastrami sandwich. Oh, it's, it's the olive oil. Honey, it's the olive oil, of course, and the bread. Fair enough. All right. All right, my, my Bergen County brother. Bye, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for they'll, being here. Now leave me alone. <laughs> Have a good one, Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. 
and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.